Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Command Space. I'm your host, Mike Hurley, and I'm joined today by Mr. Paris Lemon himself, MG Siegler. Hi, MG. Hey, how you doing? Very well, sir. How are you? I'm good today. Good. Good today. Was, was good today, yesterday a bad every day? day. <laughs> <laughs> so that, I think I have to ask, because this is something that has puzzled me for a while. Where does Paris Lemon come from? <laughs> yeah, I get this question a lot, I obviously. Bet, I, I, can um, only, I can only assume. So it's essentially, you know, I wish it was a little bit uh, uh, something around like, you know, Paris itself, or uh, I do love Paris. I've been there a few times. Uh, it's a great city, but it has nothing to do with Paris. It's actually um, when I was a, I guess I was probably 12 or 13 or something like that. I was a young teenager, say. Um, I was using uh, America Online. Uh, I'm not even sure it was called AOL at the time. It was just America Online, you know, the dial up version uh, mm-hmm. with modem and everything. And um, I happened to be uh, in a chat room, as, as one did back then. Uh, sometimes, uh, and it was just messing around, and I was uh, doing what they call scrolling, which is essentially hitting a letter or a number and then hitting return really fast. And in the old days of you know fourteen four, it may have even been earlier than than that. It may have been like tw- I know we had a twenty four hundred baud modem at some point, but I think it was right after that. But anyway. That used to clog up uh, the pipes, even doing something as sending one character and hitting return in uh, in a chat room. And so as a result of that, I was uh, banned. Uh, and so my account was shut down. Um, and the problem was, I believe I was also chatting uh, with a girl at the time that I was interested from school or whatnot. And uh, I wanted to get back online as quickly as possible. So I had to run downstairs, grab my uh, father's other credit card since I couldn't sign up with the same one that I had used since that was uh, kind of tied to the band account. And uh, I had to come up with a name as quickly as possible for this new account. Uh, and I was not a fan of using any of the, uh, you know, Siegler 0471 or whatever the generic ones that they tried to give you. So I wanted to come up with something interesting. So I opened it up an encyclopedia and was just kind of going through um, a few different uh, things. And I came across something called Paris Green, which uh, I believe is some sort of um, insecticide or uh, or just some kind of poisonous um, uh, thing that, that was used to kill rodents like in the turn of the century, uh, the turn of the last century, of course. And um, uh, it sounded like a cool thing, you know, for a teenage guy to have. It was actually, coincidentally, I've heard recently that it was uh, the central point of a uh, of an episode of Boardwalk Empire. I haven't seen that episode, so I don't know that. But oh. apparently there's a Paris Green episode, uh, which ties back to my name. But anyway, Paris Green was, uh, was taken, unfortunately. So was Paris Blue, uh, which I'm happy about because I think that ended up being a female jean company. Um, Paris Red, uh, all those ones were taken. And so I came upon Paris Lemon uh, simply by going through various other kind of colors that uh that i thought would be interesting and i think it was around the time that uh that u2 zuropa was out and they had that song lemon uh that i liked and uh so i think i just merged those two together and that's how paris lemon came to be it's funny how you pick a name like that and it sticks with you yeah right i would have never imagined uh you know my 13 year old self would have never imagined that uh uh, all these years later, you know, 17 years later, um, that I would still be using that uh, as sort of like an online representation of myself. But yeah. that's what happened. Because then that's it then. Like I, I for, for social networks and stuff, I use iMic and I spell it with a Y just because I was a teenager and was being different. Yep. And then it was like I, I just wanted to have like Mike 
whatever at gmail.com, but you needed an extra character. And uh-huh. I just bought my first iMac. So I was like, <laughs> iMac's cool. And now it's kind of like, it's a bit like, oh, why, yep. why did I do it? And then yep. it could have changed it so many times, but now it's just too late. Right. I know a lot of, uh, I have a lot of friends who have uh, online monikers that they're quite embarrassed by. So I'm not, uh, Parasummon is just strange, right? So it's not embarrassing. It's just very weird. People think I'm French or, um, <laughs> you know, think that I have some sort of uh, uh, affiliation with, uh, with lemons in some way. But uh, <laughs> no, it's just a random mishmash of two words that was, uh, that was born out of the need to get uh, back on America Online as quickly as possible. I like that to, to get back to America Online, you went via Paris. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Saying about like America Online, you kind of forget that it's, it was called that. Like that, I signed up to AOL in the UK, so I think that yep. might have been why they just dropped the like you know they just made it AOL, right? Sure, that had something to do with it. You know, the the uh, the the idea that it could only be for Americans was uh, was sort of a silly thing that they. I wonder why they they decided to go with that in the first place, but you know. Good for them that they reach global scale, and then, then of course, I ended up working for them for a little bit, which was interesting, uh, given given the background of uh, of my name and getting kicked off of America Online when I was a teenager. So. Yes, you've kind of given me the the most uh, beautiful accidental segue of all time. <laughs> yep. So it's been about a year since you left TechCrunch. Yeah, um, almost exactly. A little bit longer now. Um, uh, yeah, so I've been doing uh, the investing gig now for about a year, and you know I'm still writing for TechCrunch occasionally, um, doing uh, the Apple column, and so I do you know obviously the big Apple product reviews as well as uh, you know I try and write about once a week or once every other week or something like that, uh, just to weigh in on different various Apple related topics. Do you miss like because you you kind of had um, the startup beat as well as the Apple beat, and I think you, you're more just sort of like an Apple columnist. But do you ever miss covering a beat like that? Yeah, definitely. It's, um, you know, obviously I love writing about Apple, and that's, that's primarily what I write about, and that's what I would write about primarily, even if that wasn't my, uh, my column um, for TechCrunch. But, yeah, I definitely miss um, having some other things to write about uh, just because I, I love writing. <clears throat> Excuse me, and I love to... Uh, to kind of weigh in on uh, on various different topics, you know that that come out th- come up throughout a day, and it was you know I do miss writing about the startups specifically because uh, that was uh, such an exciting space, and it still is, uh, and you know in many ways it's getting even more exciting. But you know my my new gig uh, doing the investing is uh, you know arguably a little bit uh, even better because I'm closer to uh, to a lot of these startups now. So I guess you couldn't really, or you wouldn't want to write about startups in that capacity now because. The, the whole, you know, the whole crossed interest thing that that um, Michael Arrington right. ran into and stuff like that. I'm not, you know, you know, to be honest, I'm not too concerned about any of that stuff. You know, I'm of the mentality that uh, if someone wants to read what you're writing, you know, I think you should just be as transparent as possible about, you know, if you've invested in a startup or you know if you have some sort of other vested interest in in uh, in writing about something, but. Um, you know, I'm, I'm all for letting just the, the readers decide. I, I think it's sort of a silly um, notion that you can't, uh, you know, say something that's in your brain because you have this, uh, you know, relation to it. There's all kinds of different, um, you know, different conflicts, if you will, in your, in your brain that go on. There's personal ones, there's friendships, there's, there's monetary ones. Now, you could certainly argue that the monetary one 
is uh, more problematic simply because, you know, you could, I guess, you could alter markets that way. Um, you know, sometimes if you wrote something that was, you know, just, just wrong but overly positive or overly negative um, and kind of uh, drove a market one way or another. But again, you know, I think that it comes down to at the end of the day, just being honest uh, with your readers and like expressing your real opinion and then, um, you know, letting uh, letting things play out from there. So look, looking back over the last sort of 12 months, you're happy that you, you made the move into, would you say it's angel investing? Um, it's sort of, uh, it's, it's a little bit of angel investing though. We're, you know, we have an actual fund, um, but we do invest alongside a lot of individual angels. You know, uh, there's a lot of different terms that get thrown out micro VC type stuff. Um, you know, basically we have a a seed investment fund, but at the same time we, uh, most of our investments are on the seed side of things. We've done some later stage stuff too. So it's really just a pretty straightforward investment fund. It's just, it happens to, uh, you know, that our, that our investment, um, size is not nearly as big as, you know, some of the larger, um, VCs out there. Uh, but we're still, you know, investing across the board and, um, yeah, I'm super happy with, uh, with the decision to, to go this way. I think that this was a pretty natural transition from my life as a, uh, as the, uh, the, the blogger covering startups, because there's a lot that does translate well. Um, certainly, you know, you have your own filters, uh, so you don't have to go through, um, you know, thousands upon thousands of pitches rather you can just go through hundreds upon hundreds of them. And, uh, uh, you know, you learn what, uh, kind of over the years in the, uh, meeting with all these startups, you learn some good things, you know, what, what are good things to look for in terms of what might make a startup successful and also, you know, helping them with, uh, with some pitfalls that you've seen throughout time. So it's, you know, it's a very good transition, I think. And, uh, see, you, obviously you look at, you look, must look at hundreds of startups, you know, and, and, and you must have meetings with, I can only imagine thousands. What sort of things do you look for? Um, like, do, do you have like a, a, a base few things that you look for when you're meeting with a new startup? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, from my you know, from my own personal uh, kind of perspective, I look at uh, at products, and obviously, that's that's most of the time going to be consumer facing products, given what I've written about all the all these years, and um, you know, where my kind of area of knowledge lies. Uh, we do invest, of course, uh, on the enterprise side of things too, but you know, I have a partner. Yeah. Pat. Uh, Gallagher, who's uh, who's who's much more um, uh, savvy in the way of the enterprise uh, space than I am. But you know, of course, we all look at all these things, and uh, you get a sense of of what's good and what's not. But from yeah, from my own perspective, um, I definitely like to see uh, a good product. I mean, that sounds like so generic and obvious, but uh, I feel like if there's something that I am going to be compelled to use on a regular basis that's a, that's an easy um indication that that's something that I want to be involved in and it's also um uh you know leads to the idea that uh that hopefully we can help them um uh, you know as they as they grow and mature in some way and how do you like how do you come across new companies do you look for them do they come to you is it a, is it a mix of both yeah, I think it's a little bit of a, it's a mixture of both. It's it's mainly um, things coming our way still, which you know we're very fortunate about, obviously, um, to have good deal flow, as they call it. Um, and because we've been around for about a year, um, we both have uh, we have some brand recognition uh, now, and uh, you know because of the the former TechCrunch affiliation of both myself and, of course, uh, Michael Arrington. Um, 
uh, people know us that way. And so that's a good position to be in um, because it does lead to um, a lot of people who will uh, who will seek us out or a lot of other investors who um, who kind of point things in our direction saying like, oh, you might want to talk to these guys. They'll be interesting. They know they know the media space or they have, you know, they have some connections that could be interesting to you um, and, uh, you know, just general knowledge about uh, the area. So it's been mostly inbound, but you know we do quite a bit of outbound. You got to do that. Uh, you got to be always keeping uh, keeping your ears open for uh, what the hot new thing is and what people are talking about. What's kind of bubbling just under the surface. Once um, you you sort of uh, are involved in an investment, do you become an advisor for the company? Um, in I mean, there are there's a more formal advisor roles, um, you know, as a, as a part of the investing world. Um, and so sometimes we do take uh, advisor roles uh, more than uh, than a straightforward investment. Um, not not too often, but we've done that a few times. Um, and but you know, it, along with the investment, uh, any investment we do, I would say it's fair to say that we're uh, you know definitely uh, advisors to these companies, trying to help them um, in any way need help um and in any way we can to uh to kind of navigate the waters of of startup them yeah because i guess you know from the the what you've covered over the years you are maybe better than most people i mean you am you and michael arrington um will know what what's required to, to for a good launch I yeah Yep, that's definitely true. Um, you know, and I think that that's played out pretty well over the past year with the uh, with the companies that we have helped um, on the early stage side of things. Um, yeah, so that's gone. Uh, that's that's gone well. It's uh, you know, it's sort of interesting. The other things that we get involved in, like the the later stage stuff too, where obviously they're not going to concerned with any sort of launch, though they do have product launches that they're interested in. But it's also just as much you know navigating um, navigating both the uh, the the press space and the broader like consumer mind space uh, of knowing like you know how is this going to be perceived how's this move that we're we're doing going to be uh, what's the reaction going to be to it those kind of things so having been out of the um, the tech journalism world on a on a daily basis for for about a year now have you been able to see any changes in the space or you know, I mean how do you feel about tech journalism at the moment. Yeah, I mean it's uh it's pretty interesting to have the outside perspective now having been on the inside of that world all those years. Um you know, one thing I've written about it a couple of times and obviously it it tends to uh it tends to piss some people off, but um one thing that's that's glaring to me is the kind of lack of true knowledge about what's going on. And that's not to say that that this is always the case. Uh, certainly it's not. And sometimes um Sometimes you know reporters are out there doing a really great job at at uncovering information and um, and getting to the bottom of stories. But a lot of times now you see things that are sort of like half truths and half stories, or sometimes not even sometimes not a story. And you know they're just digging for something and 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 hoping that something's there. Um, because with the uh, being on the investor side of things, obviously you're privy to a little bit more information uh, than most uh, most would be on the journalist side of things. Uh, and so in some ways that's unfair, you know, obviously having that, that, that information that's that pretty much impossible for a journalist to get, even though they would want to get that, um, there's just things that aren't going to be shared, financial information and, and stuff like that. Um, but you know, overall, I think that there's, there's a lot of stories that I see now that are just, 
you know, they're dancing around something that's that's true, but they're not quite there. And just doing a little bit more work, I think they a lot of people could get there, but there's sort of uh, you start to notice like a little lack of uh, a, a more. Uh, focus on getting something out quick rather than getting out something comprehensive. And I totally understand that, of course, being, having been on the other side of things. I mean, that's what blogging is, right? It's, it's all about trying to be as quick as possible, being the first to that story. And, um, uh, and that's really all that matters in the minds of a, of, of, you know, a lot of bloggers these days. Whereas if you try and be more comprehensive, those will often, you know, lead to better stories. But, you know, does that matter if you're, if you're a week late uh, to something that someone else has already reported on? You know, some people will say yes, some people will say no. To you, how important is the exclusive, the hands-on, the first pictures? How important do you think that is? Or have you seen that to be? You know, I think that that's... For big stories where it's an actual exclusive, like someone is able to uncover information that that no one else has. I mean, at the end of the day, what what you what you're really trying to do as a, as a journalist or a blogger is get inform get at information that someone doesn't want to get out, right? Otherwise, it's just glorified PR. I mean, this is I think there's an old famous quote about this. This isn't anything new uh, to be said, but. Um, I mean that's essentially true. If you're just writing, um, you know, everything that uh, that a company would like to have out there in the wild, then um, you know that's not going to be that interesting, and I don't think that's worthy of kind of like an exclusive uh, uh, labeling of of information. On the other hand, if you do some digging and you find out something that that a, that a company or or some someone on the other side absolutely does not want out there, you know, that's like that's an actual scoop and that's actually exclusive, and that's like you know that's vital to what goes on in both the, the journalist and the blogging industry now. Um, you know, I think that will, obviously that's not going to go away, but we're just seeing more and more kind of reblogging of things and um, uh, just people trying to get out there as quickly as possible to get the, you know, to get the tech meme headline or to get, uh, uh, you know, to be uh, to the first to be retweeted a thousand times for all these things. And, you know, obviously I did that too in my old, in my old gig. Um, you know, I would, uh, I evolved over time, uh, tried to learn, uh, how to become a, a better writer and a better, uh, a reporter, but, um, I know how the game works and that's still the game that's going to be played. And, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. You know, if anything, it's just getting worse in the age of, of Twitter and Facebook sharing. Uh, it really kind of just depends on, uh, who has the most outrageous headlines and who can, uh, who can share it the fastest. What do you think's most important, the best headline or the better content? In terms of getting to people to click in the um in the current environment that we're in again all the social sharing stuff, it's definitely the better headline. Um, you know, I think that overall having better content will lead to a longer uh shelf life of of that uh specific article and I think that that will lead to more quality shares, you know, you'll get people who actually read the article and who uh who really kind of uh, uh, appreciated it and, uh, and you know, had a chance to think about it and maybe wanted to weigh in themselves or just wanted to, to share it to their audience. And so I think you get, um, I think you get better shares, if you want to phrase it that way, I guess. But definitely uh, in terms of volume and, um, 
and you know widest reach the the headline is is kind of the thing that that is what uh is what is pretty important these days because you have so many people who will just retweet something either i mean we've seen plenty of people retweet stuff without obviously without having read it because there's been instances uh i've seen plenty of times where we'll be retweeting like a dead link for example um so obviously they haven't read that story um uh, or people want to retweet it before they've even read it uh, just because they want to be known as the person who is the quickest at sharing with their audience, those types of things. Do you think that's a problem? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's, that's definitely a problem. Um, I'm just not sure what the solution would be to that. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, if anything, it's just going to get worse. Um, you know, this all stems from the idea that the blogging and now all of journalism really model is based around page views um with uh you know with with print journalism continuing to die in circulation just dropping and dropping and dropping um more advertising dollars coming online and the you know it's all about generating as many page views as you can in order to uh to um you know keep it keep the advertisers happy and keep them coming in you know people will say that well you know, it's not just about the uh, it's not just about the the CPMs and um, and and we're trying to attract higher quality advertisers, but it's still those are the metrics that people look at when they determine you know what what uh, ultimately how good and how healthy a site is. Is it growing? Does it keep the page view numbers growing over time? Um, you know, some people are trying to look more at uniques and and those types of things, but it's still at the end of the day, everyone is is beholden to the page view. Yeah, and I personally, I would be surprised if you could see a way out of that. Yeah, I don't. I, I'm not sure what that is. I mean, the the option would be maybe like to have, uh, you know, the the journalism space subsidized by the government or something like that. Do we really want <laughs> that? We, we just had all that that issue with uh, with the PBS uh, with the killing of Big Bird at the last uh, the last you know, U.S. presidential debate um, last week. Uh, and so it sounds like, you know, maybe PBS is up in the air for uh, getting its funding pulled. Um, do we uh, do we really want, uh, you know, overall, do we really want the government being involved in kind of financing uh, journalism? I just don't think that that's going to work. And then so you go down the line and do you think like, well, should there be, you know, patrons of, of journalism, like, so, you know, wealthy individuals put it. But then, you know, we, we talked a little bit about the, uh, the conflict uh, concerns, you know, that, that comes even into play then. Like, how do you, uh, how are you sure that the person who's the patron of this, uh, of this, this particular site or whatnot uh, isn't, you know, dictating what's uh, what's being put out there, and and we run into that now, right? Because there are plenty of sites that are that are backed by VCs. So, uh, you know, there's there's always the underlying uh, um, thought that maybe you know this is this is being spun a certain way. I think that that the, you know, for the most part, that's uh, that's well wildly overblown. You know, having worked in a uh, in a in a large blog for a long time, uh, the notion that anyone was kind of driving individual writers to write something is sort of silly uh it's i think people often think that it's more um uh organized than it, it even is it's mostly just you know at least in the in the case of TechCrunch, it was mostly uh a group of um individuals deciding what they were going to do and and you know pretty little organization which uh which speaks to the power of TechCrunch because it works so well even though it was uh it was not highly organized 
What do you think about the model of reader-supported sites like The Loop and Sean Blanc and, and people like that? What, do you think that that is a potential option in the long term? Yeah, I mean, so the I guess the biggest issue that I see with that, and, and you know, of course, we see it on larger scale with paywalls, New York Times, and, yeah. and I think that the biggest issue there is a lack of ease when it comes to paying. So I think it would be more interesting if the web had been, um, you know, created with an underlying um, unified payment layer. And, you know, there's a lot of startups now working on things like this. Obviously, there's been PayPal around forever. And and we're edging closer to things like this, but it's still not nearly as seamless as it needs to be. And so, you know, what what is a paywall is actually a wall because it's a huge barrier um, to getting people uh, in between contents and, uh, and paying. And of course, there's the the plethora of free options uh, for much of the same type of information. Um, you know, certainly on on the New York Times side, um, I would say, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, all the, the bigger media things, they're they're printing information, and you know, someone's going to reprint it later um, on some some blog that's just going to be free, and maybe you won't get the same uh, same detail of information, but you're going to get the overall. Uh, uh, larger story. And so I think it's more interesting for, you know, kind of the individual authors that you brought up um, because I think that there is a way and there is a, there's definitely a market for people paying for um, individuals that they want to read. You know, you want to get um, Jim Dalrymple's take on a, uh, a certain topic. And so uh, maybe you're willing to pay for that. Uh, but from the overall larger uh, news idea that, that, you need to pay to get access to this news. I think that's sort of silly because it's just going to trickle down to a free site eventually and not in a long time even. It's going to happen probably you know, within, uh, within minutes. Um, and so putting up that paywall is, is silly. But I think that if, they can, if you know, the larger sites can also figure out a way to really play up the fact that they have these authors who absolutely need to read their take on and you can't do that without... Um, getting behind uh, the paywall, I think that's a more compelling option. Um, but you know, going back to the to the idea of of the seamless payment thing, you know, I just see that as as the big problem. If if the web had been invented with say, you know, uh, an underlying layer kind of like we have within iOS, for example, where everything is uh, is tied to your iTunes account and that's tied to your credit card, and so everything is basically a pay one click away to be able to to pay and download. If the web was that simple and all of the web was uh, was tied to, you know, your choice uh, payment account um, and you could just one click everything and, and you do these small payments, $1, $2, $5, whatever it is, you know, that's sort of a no-brainer for a lot of people and that's why we've seen the success of of not expensive, but you know, one to ten dollar uh, apps in uh, in the app store yeah. because it's you know that's a no, no brainer for a lot of people, and I think it would be the same way on the web with content if there was that seamless uh, seamless layer that you didn't have to go and enter in your credit card information and enter in your address and kind of get verified and do all this thing. But obviously, you know, the web is what the web is, and that's not going to change anytime soon. I think that's that's also something that um, why a lot of people were were on the publishing side, we're super excited about something like the iPad because this opened up that, uh, that arena to them, the possibility of having that underlying payment layer. And I think, you know, 
it's working to some extent, and to some extent it's not working. You know, we're seeing things like the Daily, which obviously uh, uh, Wall Street Journal created in order to try to see if they could create a magazine that was just on the iPad and was just using this underlying payment layer. And you know, I think they're doing okay, but there's always there's constant talk of layoffs, and it's just it can't look the same as as a uh, as a previous uh, large scale publishing outlet did. I think. You know, I think we'll see the move more to individuals um, rather than these larger entities. And I think part of that is driven by the fact that, that some people will be willing to support individuals rather than supporting some sort of larger organization trying to get the news. And that's sad, but I think that's the reality. I think it comes down to like the personalities behind, like even at a site like TechCrunch, which is not the Wall Street Journal, but it's it's big. Um, you only really know a couple of names, you know, even though they might not be the most prolific bloggers. Like, you, you know, you came out pretty well from that. Like, people knew who M.G. Siegler was. Um, and it's that relationship that you have with that voice that I think benefits that. So I I agree with you. I think that in the long run, it will be easier for single, so single person or, or, you know, or a couple of people behind a site to be able to get that because people are paying the, the personality and the people that they might have an affection for. Right, and they and they made even. Um, I know you know a few people are working on the idea that maybe you pay early access to uh, to the company. Eventually, it becomes free. But if you want, if you're like obsessed with that individual writer and you need to get their their take on something uh, immediately, you know, some people are willing to pay for that. Um, uh, and you know, then there's of course the idea is that you should just hopefully you know pay in general like you know john gruber does his uh his his shirts that he sells kind of as a uh, as a way to get people to to pay for the content um but you know still sites like his the vast majority of the money is coming in through sponsorships that they sell um and uh you know i think that that's a that's a pretty interesting model also on a personal uh basis because you know you're you're reaching out to a brand and saying you know um Will you uh, sponsor the content that's going on my site and, and you know keep keep the servers up and keep things going and you know in return I'll be happy to uh, to link to your uh, to service and, and write a little bit about it and I think that's that's a pretty interesting model um, on a on an individual level um, and I think it, you know obviously it's working very well for him I think that you have to uh, you have to get to a scale that makes that that compelling certainly for uh, for a a brand to want to do that but um you know we're seeing things with ad networks like the the deck and some other ones um that are doing uh, uh similar ideas where it's highly curated uh uh content right that that's being uh, advertised against and so um uh so even though those individual sites may not have the the scale that makes it interesting to an advertiser to work with directly combined they have the scale where they get the impressions that they need while still maintaining a, a certain level of quality there's probably no better time than right now to talk about our sponsor for this week. I think that there's, there could be no better, better time than that right now, MG. And our, uh, our sponsor for this week is, of course, those fine folks over at Squarespace who give you absolutely everything you need to make an amazing website. Squarespace gives you a fully hosted, completely managed environment for creating and maintaining your home online, whether that be a blog, a portfolio. They have recently made new templates Um which are for businesses. So if you have a business and you want to get a site online, Squarespace can give you the tools that you need. They have the templates that I mentioned they have for all of those types of websites and they're absolutely fantastic. They're really clean and really beautifully designed and they are all uh, featured with responsive web design. 
So no matter what de- device you look on, whether it be a mobile device or a computer screen of any size, your content will scale automatically and your theme will rearrange to make sure that it looks the best that it possibly can on that device without stripping out all of your design and overlaying a peculiar iPhone-looking um, mobile site. Squarespace tries its well; will always do its absolute best and to make sure that your site looks exactly how you want it at all times and making sure that it loads quickly and is responsive on, on any device that you use. Squarespace makes it really easy to build your pages with their layout engine. They allow you to create custom layouts for each of your pages in seconds. You just add blocks of content like photos, videos, text areas, markdown areas if that's your bag. And you can easily import social media stuff as well like Instagram photos, um, your tweets and, and things like that. You can import your content from your current blog. Very easily, Squarespace have an importer where you can just plug in your information and it will squeeze in all of your um, posts from another site and it just displays them and, and it does this very well and it keeps all of your URLs and everything all in check and that's a really great thing. It's very easy to move into Squarespace. And if you have any issues at all, they have 24-7 award-winning customer support to help you and they have online workshops to help walk you through step-by-step everything you need to know to build your amazing website. There's no credit card required to try out Squarespace. Just go to squarespace.com forward slash 70 decibels and start your two-week free trial. Squarespace is then $10 a month for their standard plan and $20 a month for their unlimited plan. But if you sign up for a year up front, you'll get 20% off that price overall. And if you sign up for two years, you'll get 25% off. And if you decide to purchase... I can give you an additional 10% off, so it'll be 10% off whatever you purchase, whether it's a monthly plan or an annual plan, so another 10% off that discount, if you enter the offer code 70 decibels 10 at the checkout screen. I'd like to thank Squarespace for their continued support of Command Space and the 70 decibels podcast network. So, MG, in your history, and, and even still now, you have been known to have some quite good sources for um, maybe Apple News or whatever. But I think maybe for me, I consider your most notable um, leak to be probably the Kindle Fire. Sure. Like right, you, right. You, ha- you had that a long time before anybody else and you sort of seem to have had access to the device. I wonder what, that's, what that, that, that is like to have sources. Like is, that a, is it a pressure that you feel that you have? Like you might find something out and you're not sure whether you can talk about it because, you know, there have been many times in the past where Apple have leaked incorrect information so it can look bad on you and the person. Do you, do you have that sort of conflict? Um, so that, that's a, that's a really interesting example. So that happened to be, you know, one of, that was probably my last, you know, big scoop before, uh, uh, leaving TechCrunch. Um, I guess I was actually, uh, you know, in the process of course of talking about what I wanted to do next at that point. But, uh, you know, I happened upon this, uh, this information and, you know, we talked a little bit about the, idea of um an, an actual scoop or exclusive versus uh versus something that's that's you know kind of leaked up by the company obviously this was uh the former this is this was something that amazon did not want out there and uh i was able to um to get access to the uh the kindle fire which uh didn't know that would be the name at the time i think i, I reported a couple of days before the actual that that would be the name once i heard that but uh um and that was, uh, you know, that was a big deal um, in terms of the lengths that I went to to try to obfuscate who the source was in right. that case. Uh, I won't go into the details because it's, uh, you know, it's just, um, 
we've, we're, we're far removed from it now, but I still, you know, I obviously don't want to get anyone in trouble. Yeah, but that person uh, will probably still lose their job. Like, <laughs> I don't think that sort of thing wears off. But I'll just say that I did go um, to great lengths to make sure that uh, that I could uh, uh, keep that tightly under wraps as to who the source was there because they were taking a huge risk um, in in giving me that information. And you wonder, well, what, you know, what's their incentive kind of for doing that, right? I, I get asked that a lot. Um, you know, uh, you always want to ask that of the source or at least try and figure that out of the source so, you know, you're not being manipulated in some way, which obviously does happen quite a bit. You know, uh, of course, if it's coming from the larger company itself, you have to wonder, you know, what's their agenda to doing this? Uh, is, is this a... Is this a timed leak for a certain uh, certain purpose? But in the case of uh, of an actual leak coming from someone else uh, who's not, um, you know, speaking directly for the company, you wonder: uh, Are they just disgruntled? Are they, you know, something like that? With this particular thing, you know, even a disgruntled employee would seem sort of silly to uh, to, to leak something like this. Um, you know, I think it was just a uh, an issue of this person being a uh, uh, kind of a fan. And, and knew um, knew that that I would be uh, in particular interested uh, in in this bit of information, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know not not really knowing um, how how that game works and like you know I you know I have access to this information should I tell someone uh, what you know obviously they know that it's that it's dangerous to do that from their job but uh, you know I think that they they felt compelled for whatever reason to. Uh, to share up that information uh, because they, you know, they were just kind of a, a fan of of what I had been uh, been writing and knew that I would have a a, a particular interest in this, um, you know, given what I had written about. Um, I think I think I had written a, quite a few things about Amazon entering Android, the Android space, and kind of competing against Google and how that could be even a more compelling battle than uh, than Android and uh, and the iPad uh, in the tablet space, at least certainly. Um, and, you know, I think that that's playing out right now. And so, uh, yeah, it was, that was a, that, that was a, a, an interesting time. In the same sort of vein, um, you have in the past received early hardware, maybe most notably from Apple. So you had a, uh, a new iPhone five a couple of weeks before it went on sale or was it a week? A cu- yeah, it was a couple of weeks, right? Uh, was it a week? Yeah. Yeah, some, something like that. I, I think that's that's fair to say. It was, you know, it wasn't a long amount of time, but yes. What is that process like? You know, that's um, that's obviously a pretty controlled thing. Um, uh, you know, Apple uh, says that they're you know ask if you're available for uh, available for a meeting. Doesn't tell you kind of what <laughs> what it. Um, and then uh, you know you go you go in and have that meeting and. Uh, uh, just you know, it's a pretty straightforward thing, but uh, the amount of secrecy surrounding it is, uh, you know, that's what that's what you hear about Apple, and that's absolutely true. They uh, they hold everything very close to the uh, to the vest right up until the last second, and um, you know, of course, you you get these things to uh, to to do a review of, and you're you know you're not allowed to talk about it, of course, until uh, until the uh, the, the embargo is up and, and you know that's kind of a funny thing I have a I have a sort of uh, uh, not even a love hate just a hate hate relationship with embargoes but I will say that um, you know one of the reasons why I agree to these these Apple ones is I have never seen anyone break an Apple embargo and they are uh, 
you know, kudos to them for that, to their communication team, and and uh, they are on top of it. I think if someone did, obviously, you know, I think the threat that Apple just wouldn't work with them anymore is enough to uh, to keep that embargo alive. And while I don't love the idea of embargoes overall, um, you know, I, I like the ideas of of information getting out there and letting it be free in a, in a more uh, um, seem a uh, more organic sort of way, but. If you're going to do or, uh, or embargoes, and I think that it does make sense to do them in, in certain circumstances, for example, giant product launches, um, you've got to ensure that those embargoes are going to hold. And you know, with every other company, both startups, of course, and and you try and cut them a lot more slack because it, you know they're they're early, they can make mistakes. But with these bigger companies. Google, Microsoft, you know, we've seen them all. Embargo breaks left and right, and it's just ridiculous. So, like, why are we even agreeing to these embargoes if, if you know, there's a pretty good chance that they're going to be broken? And the problem is that when they are broken, there's no real consequence. You know, you can say, like, uh, okay, so this embargo got broken um, by this publication by a day or, you know, or 12 hours or something like that. So what are you going to do about it? And they're like, well, you know, they apologized. It was a mistake. It's like, okay, when the same mistake keeps happening over and over and over, and obviously it's not a mistake. And at the end of the day, who cares if it's a mistake? They're being, you know, some writer or some publication was incompetent, and you shouldn't work with them anymore. There should be some. There needs to be some sort of penalty behind this embargo idea if you're going to do it at all. Otherwise, it's a total farce. Do you think that maybe the Apple ones are controlled because everybody knows that? Like, if if you broke an Apple embargo, that's it. I absolutely think that. I think that that speaks to uh, speaks to exactly what I'm talking about. Where. Um, you know there is no fear of breaking an embargo from a lot of these other bigger companies because there is no real ramification. But with Apple, uh, I think everyone knows that there would be a real ramification, and it's sort of funny how there's never been an embargo break. It you know there may have been one sometime several years ago. There's never been one that I've noticed, at least that I've seen uh, in the past several years of doing this. Um, and so it's funny that there's never been one uh, while there are all the time with these other companies. So. Uh, you know, that just goes to show you that's how it has to work and that's how it has to be done. How do you, like, when you have something like the the new iPhone, how does it feel? Like, are you, do you take it out of the house? Are you scared, like, to to let people know? Because, I mean, people will probably assume that you've got it and, and I'm, I'm sure quite rightly you, would, you just ignore the question. But do, do you feel like you have to keep it at home? Yeah, uh, for the most part, you know, you want you take it out to uh, to do some testing, but you know, you're obviously just uh, just told to be as careful as possible, and you know, it's it's not too hard to do. It's uh, it's sort of interesting when a device looks totally different. The iPhone five, you know, looks fairly different than than the iPhone four and four S. The four S was easier because it looked the exact same as the four. So who could tell, you know, yeah. that it was uh, which which device it was? You'd have to actually like look at the screen or or <laughs> look in the settings to know uh, the true difference but um yeah when something looks different you definitely have to be careful because you know most of the time yes you're going to want to test it um in your in your house because it's the most secure environment but at the same time you also want to be able to do you know making sure that it works while you're you know walking around the neighborhood or or you know with this with this latest one while you're in the, while you're in the car with the uh, with the driving directions so you recently i saw on instagram received um the new ipods uh, they've started shipping. What are you, do you have any first impressions on the Touch and the Nano? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I have them right here, actually. So, um, you know, I'm in the process of sort of just testing them, seeing how it, uh, seeing how well they work, etc. Um, but yeah, I, I think the um, 
the tu- the new touch is pr- is pretty interesting from a design perspective because it's of course the from the front it looks exactly like the iPhone five it's, it has the uh, the larger four inch screen now but from the back it's totally different it's a uh, it's a full kind of full unibody uh, aluminum and uh, a colored aluminum um, uh, uh, backside and. It's pretty nice. Uh, it seems almost to me like this is this is the design that Apple sort of wishes they could do for the iPhone in some ways. Um, I think that the the cellular uh, uh, needs for the iPhone uh, make that a little bit hard to do. Um, and you know, I'm sure there's some other design choices that they make in order to make it a little bit thicker and and kind of flat on the sides, um, which they obviously did with the four and the four S as well. With the four, of course, it was the antennas that were around the uh, around the corners. Um, but this feels much more like a um, a single unified uh, uh, piece of piece of work, and so it's a uh, it's very interesting to me from a design perspective. And they even have you know they have. Uh, They've included now this. Uh, I think they're calling it the loop, right? The uh, the the wristband essentially um, that's that's built right into it. So that's that's kind of a new little uh, wrinkle in the design feature of it. But you know that's very well done. You just push it down to pop it up and, and put the put the loop thing on, uh, and then you can hide it away when it's not there. But you know, in terms of overall speed and, and things like that, this is you know more or less a iPhone 4s. So it's not as fast as an iPhone 5. You know, it's got the uh, the A5 chip, um, uh, and so you know that's uh, that's that's not as fast. But I think uh, for a lot of people who are in the market for an iPod Touch, this is obviously going to be a, a great upgrade um, given the new screen size and especially the new camera. I think it's a five megapixel camera, so it's not quite the eight megapixel on the five, but it's a it's a really good camera from. Um, uh, from my limited time playing with it. And I think, you know, given that plus the wrist strap element of it, I think that Apple knows that a lot of people are going to use this as kind of their point and shoot camera. And, you know, what better, uh, what better point and shoot to buy than one, uh, that comes with, uh, the ability to access all the, you know, hundreds of thousands of apps and, uh, play games on it, do all the other stuff that, that you would do on, on the iPhone. Um, in terms of the, the nano, um, that's that's uh, I'm I'm pretty fascinated by it. Um, you know, I don't typically review iPods too much, or I haven't in the past. I've done it a couple times, but um, you know, I said I was interested in doing it this time because I'm I'm more interested in thinking about what what the what the iPod is still to Apple since it's you know it's it's been a declining business for them for a while. It was once their largest business, um, and now it's uh, you know fourth fiddle. Um, yeah. In terms of revenue, I believe. Uh, and so, what does it actually mean, and why does Apple keep coming out with these if if it's very clear that that things like the iPod and the iPod Touch are uh, are cannibalizing the the straight up uh, music player market? Um, but this, you know, this this one's this one's fascinating because they did decide to to make it a little bigger in terms of. Uh, uh, the full length of it it's obviously a lot longer now it is a l- much larger screen and that's why you know they they restored the ability to play videos um so there's that element to it they took away things like the clip in the back so it's no longer you know as 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 tiny as it was and uh um uh i guess as portable in some way though it's i mean it's extremely light and uh you know i was walking around with it the other day in just my shirt pocket um uh and they've made it look a little bit more like uh like iOS, uh, even though it's not iOS, right? They have these rounded icons now that you tap on to launch, you know, a certain application, whether it's music, videos, podcasts. Um, but I'm also, uh, 
I'm intrigued, and I think this is this is what I'm mainly going to write about um, about the idea that the I, Apple is obviously moving to the cloud as all companies are with a lot of the with a lot of the content, um, and so they have you know iTunes in the cloud, but the iPod Nano doesn't have any access to that. So instead, it's it's the old school way of just syncing with a with a computer to make sure that that you have your content on this device. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit frustrating when I'm so used to everything being in the cloud. You know, I use RDO. Uh, I have a, a lot of uh, my older music in iTunes in the cloud. Um, and so it's, it's, it's sort of a weird uh, uh, learning curve to go back in time in a way and have to sync up. And why didn't Apple include uh, uh, Wi-Fi in this? You know, it's probably a design decision, but uh, they did include Bluetooth. And so you can use it to stream music wirelessly to like a jam box or something like that. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty fascinated by by this uh, this thing, and I, and I'm I'm going to be really interested to see how well it sells uh, in the coming coming holiday season. You know, obviously it's a good price uh, and a and a good you know kind of uh, cheaper present uh, versus uh, an iPod Touch. But um, you know, is there still a huge market for these things? Are you a fan of the design for the Nano? Um, yeah, I mean, I like it. Uh, I like it a lot more than I still remember the days of the Fat Nano, the quote Fat Nano. That was that was pretty weird. I, uh, <laughs> that was just a, a poor decision that I think they they remedied pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, the Nano over time has 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 been sort of a fascinating thing from a design perspective because Apple changes it so often, and they don't. They're not you know not always about going to uh, as small as possible as we're seeing in this current iteration. I mean, this is you know this is. Uh, let me see if I yeah I have the other one right here so it's uh you know it's roughly twice the size it's almost exactly twice the size of um if you stack two old iPod nanos um on top of each other that's the that's the length of this this is thinner because it doesn't have that clip uh to clip on anymore but um you know uh, obviously they felt like the screen was the important thing here, and the ability to play uh, video, I think, is uh, is what they're thinking about mainly there. Also, to display pictures, of course. But um, um, you know, and they're keeping. I don't have a, a new shuffle. I don't think that those were upgraded too much beyond the colors, right? So, um, you know, I think that they're just keeping those going as the, as the lowest end of that. But you know, maybe differentiating a bit between the uh, a bit more between the the shuffle and the nano, because I, you know, the old. Uh, the last generation of the nano and this generation of the uh of uh, uh or sorry in the last generation of the shuffle were sort of almost the same size the the shuffle was a little bit smaller since it didn't have the screen and it just had the uh the controls themselves but uh uh you know it really wasn't that different in size uh so it was mainly a price point thing if you were going to buy one or the other and now there's uh now you know you could obviously go with the uh with the nano if you want um a larger screen to watch videos um uh or if you want the bluetooth capability i feel like i have to see one of these in person because i've only seen um product images in the video and i really don't like the way that it looks but everybody that i talk to seems to be quite liking it so maybe i'm just the odd one out i'm not really sure so it's you know it's nice it's the same uh it's the same type of aluminum um of course that they use for the new uh, ipod touch so i got two in the same color here and they uh you know it's a uh, it, i think it looks pretty nice um i saw some of the uh the talk that it looked a bit like a, a lumia um yep. which is you know more or less uh the case 
of course, it's much smaller than that, but uh, uh, that is sort of the look that they have here. And it's interesting that it is a home button now, too, right? I mean, they previous with the previous version of the um, of the Nano, uh, the way that you interacted with the uh, with the screen was basically to swipe back and forth uh, to be able to exit out of of applications. And it's weird that you can actually still do that with this version, but they included a home button that's you know of course taking a cue from the iPhone, the iP- iPad, and the iPod Touch. Um, uh, and so they're kind of transferring that over. And, you know, I think that was another reason for the, uh, the little bit larger of the design this time. They wanted to, uh, yeah. to take those um, hundreds of millions of, uh, of iOS users and, uh, you know, see if they could uh, transfer some of that, that over to uh, an iPod itself. The, the circle silhouette on the home button is disorientating to me. Like- so, yeah, I, I agree. I think, you know, I think... From my understanding, this is uh, it, this is an idea that it's not iOS. Um, yeah, because you know, th- with the with the iOS buttons, the iOS device buttons, you know, it's a little bit of a of a square of a of a rounded square, right? Um, this is a pure circle, and it shows uh, the difference between the app icons on both devices. Whereas on iOS devices, it is it's more of a square with rounded edges, and on the the this new iPod Nano, it's uh, it, they're f- fully circular uh, app icons it just kind of makes it look like a knockoff a little bit to me <laughs> like it looks like a japanese knockoff of a of an iphone that's yeah that's uh, that's sort of an interesting thought it, you know looking at them side by side you could uh you, one could definitely uh draw that conclusion until you pick it up and then you realize it's a it's a pretty high quality item but uh yeah just looking at them you could definitely draw that so there's, there's one sort of last uh, big topic I want to want to raise with you before we finish, and that's being a fanboy or being accused of being one. You get this a lot, right? You're always called a fanboy. Yep. Um, do you? I mean, you consider yourself a fan of Apple, right? Yeah, you know, uh, of course. Um, I think the the problem with with the term, uh, and you know, I don't really. It, it really doesn't bother me. I, you know, I've written posts to that effect before. Like, you're damn right. I'm a fanboy. I think I read at one point. Um, but I think the problem with the idea behind the term is that you only love things by one company. And, of course, um, that's the way that, the, that, that I'm perceived. That's the way that a lot of people are perceived right now. I think that that's, um, you know, the, the implication there, though, is that that's some sort of uh, you're being brainwashed or that's, that's, that's incorrect or you're just not seeing things clearly. But, you know, I think that the fact that Apple uh, has become, you know, basically the most successful company in the world uh, speaks to the fact that a lot of us who are labeled as fanboys all these past years were more or less right. Um, not that say that we were, you know, not, not that everything we say is right and, and uh, uh, not that everything I say in particular is right. But I think that the overall mindset that Apple is the one making the best products out there has been proven by the market um, now. I mean, there's, there's just no denying that. Given, given the amount of sales they're doing, given the, the, you know, the overall valuation of the company, the way Wall Street looks at this company, the way that they're leading in terms of, uh, of product design and product innovation, I think that there's no question um, that you know, Apple has kind of proven that they are worthy of, uh, of the admiration of a lot of people who just love products. And that's really what it's about at the end of the day. I don't really care if it's Apple or if it's anyone else who makes these products. If I used to, you know, I, I, I go back and talk sometimes about my uh, my earlier days, uh, you know, growing up, um, I was always a uh, a pretty big uh, uh, 
PC user and a pretty big Windows user in particular. You know, I was uh, I was a fan of Windows product or Microsoft products to the point where I went to the uh, the midnight launch of of Windows ninety five. I had my father drive me to CompUSA and we camped out outside and and waited and uh, you know I was so excited to be there and and get my hands on one of the first copies of it. Um, you know, I bought uh, Windows XP the day it came out, Windows ME. I, I had them all, of course. Um, you know, going back to uh, to earlier, even when uh, obviously I was using DOS, and then then uh, when Windows itself came around, and uh, I was kind of obsessed with the differences between Windows for work groups versus Windows three point one, the standard version. Um, uh, so you know, you could have you could have very easily labeled me as a Microsoft fanboy in uh, in the nineties, and that just changed over time. As as you know, whether right or wrong, you can agree or disagree. I think that Microsoft's uh, products just went down in quality as Apple started to skyrocket in quality. And there was a bit of a transition there, too, because, you know, in the, uh, I think in the, in the mid-2000s, you could have rightly, if you were reading my you know, own personal blog at the time, you could have rightly called me a Google fanboy. I loved everything Google. That's all I cared about. That's all I wrote about. And then uh, I just, you know, I saw that Apple was, uh, was evolving into what would become this juggernaut. And, and, you know, I just started using all of the different products. And I realized, like, my entire life, I was just was getting consumed by these Apple products after I really didn't like Apple in the 90s. And I refused to, to you know, use those products at school. And I just didn't get it. And I didn't understand why some of my friends like them. Um, and now I've done the complete 180. And I think that that speaks to the fact that it's not just about Apple. It's about great products. I want to use whatever the best product is out there. I don't care if Apple makes it. I don't care if Google makes it. I don't care if Microsoft makes it. I don't, I'm not silly enough to think that, that Apple's always going to be on top. I think that that's just not going to be the, the case. That's, you know, history, um, you know, will prove, will prove this. Uh, that's the way that things, things evolve. Things have to evolve for, uh, for really for progress to be made. Uh, you can't just have one company that's, that's going to dominate things over and over and over and over a long period of time. I think that Apple's in the driver's seat for the foreseeable future for sure. But, um, you know, we'll see what happens over time. And when, uh, if and when someone starts making better products than Apple, I'll be the first person to jump on that bandwagon or I'll want to be the first person to jump on that bandwagon to, uh, to you know, spread my header admiration for what the, the whatever that company is doing we have um we have some listeners that have, have asked like a couple of questions and one of them from uh ryan mcmillan on app.net he asked um sort of leading from this how have you learned to deal with trolls i mean and i see that i mean i see you on twitter and stuff you kind of seem to enjoy in a way like um dealing with them at times you seem to have quite a stomach for it <laughs> yeah, um, that's something that I've had to build up over time for sure. You know, uh, I just um, you know in the early days of kind of writing for some of these these larger blogs. At first, I wrote for VentureBeat, and then I moved over to TechCrunch. So you know, I, I um, you know I slowly over time started to get used to having uh, having trolls being a part of uh, of kind of the online commentary in a in a major way when you're writing for these major publications. Um, and you know, at first it was it was sort of annoying. You you think about like why are these people like so crazy, or why do they hate you, or or why do they or why do they love you in some cases? Um, uh, and then it just you start to just grow a really thick skin about it, and because you learn like it really doesn't matter uh, anything that that these people are saying um, when they're being so outlandish. Uh, it's just sort of you know. It, 
it won't be remembered in any sort of way, uh, even an hour from from whenever you're reading that. And so it just doesn't matter, and it doesn't it doesn't make sense to take up your time kind of uh, worrying about that. And so you know, uh, lately, I guess in the past couple of years, I've just grown to uh, occasionally I like to have fun with it, where I just you know try and troll back um, at some of. The- yeah, the trollish comments and some of the things on Twitter, um, and you know that's just sort of a uh, kind of a fun way to uh, to deal with it, and uh, you know get people even more uh, more excited about uh, whatever it is that you're saying. You might as well have some fun with it. Yeah, why not? Um, and the last thing, so at Birch Tree, also on App dot net, um, he said that you had high praise in an Nexus Seven when it was um, announced. You wrote a really great review of it on TechCrunch. Do you still use the device? Yeah, I was actually just using it uh, right before we started this podcast. Um, I was trying to see if I got the upgrade. Uh, there's some talk of an upgrade to uh, uh, to Jelly Bean that has uh, that allows you to use it in landscape mode. I unfortunately do not have the upgrade yet, but um, I was checking for that just now. Um, yeah, I'm still using it. You know, I uh, I'm I'm very interested to see how it will stack up against this, you know, supposed iPad mini, uh, uh, if, and when it comes out, um, you know, if they're around the same size, um, interested to see what that battle will be like, because of course we've seen the battle between the Nexus seven and kind of what Amazon is now doing with the newer, uh, and those two are going at each other's throats. And where does Apple fit into this equation in this form factor? I think the form factor is great. I mean, that's my, I think that was my highest praise of the Nexus Seven was that I think that that uh, ASUS and uh, and Google really really nailed it with a form factor, and it's of course you know the form factor that Kindle Fire and everything else is using. Um, and I think that it was a mistake of Apple to at first at least think that it wasn't uh, wasn't a compelling form factor. And I think we're going to see that play out if and when they do the the iPad Mini. I think we'll see that play out in terms of sales. Um, I think that a lot of people are going to buy uh, that device um, because. That's a good form factor for a lot of things, you know, certainly for reading, for using it in bed, just for walking around the house, even for walking around when you're outside. You know, a lot of times, obviously, you're going to, uh, to have your smartphone on you, and that's going to be your main device. But this thing is, is pretty compelling to throw in a bag and just kind of use in a cafe. Um, and, and then, of course, it becomes an overlap of, well, when do you use that versus when do you use uh, a regular size iPad? I think that um, for most people, that it will, won't be... Um, you know, using both. I think that people will do either or. I think, um, or it may be a case of where people at first buy the the cheaper version um, and then upgrade, as it were, to uh, to the other version. And you know, that's on Apple to kind of make make it clear what the uh, what the differences are. And and uh, you know, maybe that's LTE. Maybe it's just the larger screen. Maybe it's um, faster processors. You know, the Retina display, things like that. Um, so that's really on Apple to kind of differentiate the products and make sure that there is a compelling reason to still get the larger iPad. I think that the larger iPad is, um, is really just kind of totally eating into the way that I use uh, a laptop computer now. I mean, I take the, the iPad with all the time. You know, I've talked about it a bit. I use the, uh, the Logitech wireless keyboard with it, so I can still, you know, do a fair amount of typing um, and blogging and things like that. Um, but that's, I mean, it's, I really love it as a, as a laptop replacement. And I think that over time, more and more people are going to, uh, to go along with that and i think that you know we see whole generations of kids now of course who are growing up knowing only the ipad as as their computing device and i i'm going to be fascinated to see how that uh how that works over time do they keep using the ipad do they do they kind of do they upgrade to a computer do they ever use a computer um or do they 
you know, start using smartphones and kind of use a 7-inch tablet instead of uh, something the iPad size. Um, so all of that is going to play out over the next 5 to 10 years. And, and I think that that's going to be, uh, I mean, that's, that's what the future of computing is all about. Um, and so, yeah, in terms of the Nexus 7 itself, though, you know, I think, I think uh, Google did a very good job with, uh, with figuring out the, the right size of it. And I think Jelly Bean, uh, the latest version of, uh, of Android, is finally, um, uh, you know, compelling enough to use on a regular basis. I still don't think it's anywhere near as polished. Um, and I don't think the apps are anywhere near as good as, uh, as most of the apps on iOS. You know, when you compare things like uh, using Twitter on it, uh, a lot of the other big apps, uh, even using Instagram and things like that. It's just like there's still lags here and there within the iOS, within the, within the OS itself. And, you know, you wonder why that's the case when this thing is, is very powerful. Um, but, you know, uh, for most people who don't use iOS devices all the time, I think that this is a super compelling thing to buy at, uh, at the 7-inch form factor and at the 199 price. I mean, you can't, certainly can't discount that. I mean, this thing is, is, is uh, more than, than half off what, an iPad, what the cheapest iPad would be. So, um, you know, I think that, uh, that Google did a smart thing with this. I agree. I'm a big fan of mice. I read comics on it. It's my favorite device for reading comic cool. So, Anyway, MG, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, where can people find you if they would like to follow what you do? Uh, you know, obviously on Twitter at Paris Lemon, parislemon.com. And then, uh, uh, you know, I write occasionally now on, uh, on uh, another blog under, under the subtle network, uh, massivegreatness.com. So, That's a great bye. URL, by the way. I like Thank you. I like that one. Um, links to all of those things will be in the show notes. Um, yeah, I'm uh, I Mike on Twitter. I M Y K E. The same on App.net, which uh, more active on now. You are not there, Mr. Siegler. I'm I'm taking the uh, the wait and see approach. I kind of laid my uh, laid down my uh, my stake, saying that uh, you know I think that. I think that what they're doing is certainly interesting. I just don't think that it has legs in the long run. I hope I'm wrong. You know, I, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, uh, of startups, uh, you know, disrupting something that they feel that they need to disrupt. And so I hope that that ends up being the case. I just, uh, I'm not so sure about it yet. It's a, it's a, it's a good take to have, but um, check in at some point. It's good. It's fun there. <laughs> it's, it's like Twitter was in the old days at the moment. Whether it will stay like that, we're not sure. So next week, I'm going to be joined by uh, Brett Terpster, and I'm sure we'll be covering his new book that he's released with uh, David Sparks. So check in for that. I'm sure it'll be a great episode. And again, thank you, MG, for joining us. And uh, until next time, bye-bye. <laughs>